urgent mission. The gospel compels us to respond to others as Christ has responded to us. That's why we pray, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. We've seen how that first changes how we forgive others, and second, how it compels us to yield our resources for their blessing. I want to talk now about how it pushes us out to the ends of the earth. When I first surrendered to Jesus, I told him I'd do whatever he asked me to do. All I needed was some instructions. I kept waiting for some kind of Damascus Road experience, where God knocked me out of my car and told me the plan, or at least spelled out in my Cheerios what he wanted from me. Something like, J.D., take the gospel to Afghanistan. But nothing like that ever came. No bright lights, no voices. All my Cheerios ever spelled out was, Ooh. So, I chose a career path I thought I'd be good at, and got on with it. But during my junior year of college, I was arrested by Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In Romans, Paul lays out a case why faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. How people have to hear about Jesus in order to put faith in him. And how we are the only ones they can hear it from. In Romans 2.12, Paul explains that even those people who haven't heard about God must answer to him, because God has revealed himself sufficiently to them through their consciences and the splendor of the creation. They may never have heard the name of Jesus, but they know there is a God, and they have rejected his authority and his glory. We all, religious and non-religious alike, have rejected God, because of that, we all stand condemned. Thus, Paul concludes, our only hope is an undeserved second chance, and that comes by hearing the gospel. It is hard to describe what happened that morning as I read that verse. It was as if that truth suddenly became real. I had understood it before, propositionally, but for the first time in my life, I felt the weight of it. It was almost like when you are staring at one of those magic eye 3D pictures that suddenly jumps out at you when you cross your eyes just right. The reality of whole nations of people perishing having never heard Jesus gripped my soul. You see, at most, one third of our world is Christian. That's if you count everyone who claims to be a Christian. That means at least 4.5 billion people are, by their own admission, non-Christian and therefore separated from God. The Joshua Project, a Christian missions research organization, tells us that of 4.5 billion, at least 2.25 billion, have little to no access to the gospel. 2 billion, 250 million individuals. It's easy to get lost in that statistic. Joseph Stalin once said, the death of one is a tragedy, the death of a million is just a statistic. That's a chilling statement coming from a madman. But there's some truth to it. Statistics overwhelm. But we, when we are confronted by the death of an individual, we feel compassion. Because we see in that person a reflection of ourselves. We identify with their pain. These 2.25 billion are people created in the image of God just like you and me. They have the same needs, wants, hurts, and desires that you and I have. 
Each one is someone's son or daughter. Many are someone's mom or dad. They know what it is like to be lonely and afraid. Going to hell for them is every bit the tragedy that would be for you or me. As the waviness of 2.25 billion people lost without God pressed in on my soul, I felt like I was suffocating. I just sat there, speechless. It didn't seem right to be going about my life, pursuing my dreams, waiting on God to tell me what to do. We know what he wants us to do. Imagine you were walking by a railroad track and you came upon a young child lying on the tracks hurt and unable to move. You hear a train coming in the distance. If you pick the child up, you will rescue him. If you do not, he will die. What do you do? Do you get down on your knees, pray and ask God what his will is and wait for a warm, fuzzy feeling confirming that it is his will that you rescue this child? Of course not. You know what God's will is. You save the child. In relation to the unreached people groups of the world, we know what God's will is. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. People talk about finding God's will. It's not really lost. His will is that lost people hear about Jesus and become saved. That morning, confronted by this reality, I had three options. Number one, I could deny it. I could deny the plain teaching of Romans that people are lost until they hear about Jesus and believe on him. Picking and choosing what you want to believe from the Bible is called liberalism. You can form the Bible to fit your personal preferences, but the Bible is not a buffet where you take what you want and leave what you don't. You and I don't judge the Bible. It should judge us. The path of liberalism is a dead end. Number two, I could ignore it. I could put my head back in the sand and ignore the fact that billions of people around me were lost. I could go on about my life letting Jesus take me to heaven and giving me fulfillment and meaning. But how could I do that now, knowing what I know? Ignoring truth doesn't change it. Sadly, I believe that is what the vast majority of the evangelical church is doing with their knowledge about heaven and hell. We go on about our lives as if hell were not real, or like there are not 2 billion, 250 million people who have no chance of hearing the gospel except through us. We play while people perish. Number three, I could embrace it. I knew this would be radical. It would lead to a dramatic reorientation of my life. I chose number three. That morning, my prayer about what to do with my life changed from, God, if you spell it out in cheerios for me to go, I'll go. To God, here am I. Please send me. Use my life to the greatest extent possible to bring salvation to others. I believe that is the prayer every disciple of Jesus should pray. Our prayer should not be, God, if you make a special appeal for me to do something about the lostness of the world, I'll do it. It's kind of a senseless prayer. Because he has already told us what he wants for the world. Our prayer now should be that God guide us to our specific role. Whether we should be involved in the Great Commission is no longer the question. How we should be involved is the question. God answered my prayer by allowing me to spend time overseas 
in one of the unreached people groups of the world. And now he's allowing me to pastor a church that sends out hundreds of students and young adults each year to take the name of Christ where he is known. Every disciple of Jesus should ask God to use his or her life maximally for his kingdom. Overseas missions will not be God's answer for everyone, but if we have really experienced the gospel, then we'll be asking God to use us in his mission. We will say something like this, Lord, let my life be a seed for others like yours was for me. Plant it into the ground. Let my dreams die so that others might live. Show me how to best invest my life for you and not for me. As you have been to me, I want to be to others. Think about that. How could we not pray that? Where would you be without Jesus? According to Paul, you'd be at exactly the same place that a lot of people in the world are. A lot of people in the world are if you refuse to embrace the task. Martin Luther said it wouldn't matter if Jesus had died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. We are the only way they hear about it. Now let's remember here, lest we saddle ourselves with a burden we can't carry, that the work of salvation from start to finish is God's work. God didn't lay the Great Commission on our shoulders as if he expected us to go accomplish it for him. Just as he is the only one who can save, he's the only one who empowers and supplies for the mission. Even after Paul laid out the case that people can only be saved if we preach to them, he says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Notice he doesn't say, And how can they hear unless we go? But how can they hear unless we are sent? Paul still looks heavenward for the completing of the task. The Holy Spirit has to do the sending before the going does any good. The Holy Spirit anoints us, commissions us, and resources us. He'll use us and our stuff in the process. But don't confuse His doing it through us with Him telling us that we have to do it for Him. He gave us a promise that He would build His church through us, not a charge that we were to build it for Him. That said, the breakdown in the system of sending, going, preaching, hearing, and believing isn't with any failure on God's part to send. It's with our going. When we present ourselves to God as willing goers, rest assured that He'll be a willing sender. That's what I did that morning in my dorm room. I presented myself to God and asked to be used by Him. I asked to be the seed put in the ground to die. For 18 years now, God has answered that prayer. That has included overseas assignments as well as some across the street. When you pray the third part of the gospel prayer, as you have been to me, so I will be to others, be prepared for God to lead you to do something extraordinary. Be prepared for a radical reorientation of your life. Our freedoms versus the gospel. We all have dreams about what we'd love to do with our lives, but are we willing to let our dreams die so that God can use us in His kingdom? One of my favorite stories from Paul's life captures how Paul lived this way. Paul had been put in a Roman prison, not for something he had done 
incorrectly, but for something he did right. He had delivered a girl from demonic and economic exploitation. Rather than being rewarded, however, he was beaten, Roman style, and then imprisoned. But as he lay there in chains that night with open, bleeding wounds, he began to reflect on the goodness of God toward him and worshipped him with a psalm. In response, God sent an earthquake. The prison walls fell down and Paul's chains fell off. He was a free man. And it was a God-given freedom too. After all, isn't God the one who sent the earthquake? Paul knew that God sometimes sent angels to free his messengers in prison. He had done this for Peter just a few chapters before. Wouldn't it have been reasonable to conclude that what that was what he was doing here too? Surely this was an answer to prayer. Yet, as Paul prepared to walk into the open air, he saw in the distance a Roman soldier, with sword drawn, about to kill himself. The rule in those days was that if a Roman soldier lost a prisoner, for whatever reason, he had to pay with his own life. Paul was free, but he saw another man in chains. Decision time. There stood Paul, with his God-given freedom on one hand, and his Roman captor on the other. What did Paul do? He turned his back on his freedom and walked back into the prison joyfully and willfully so he could share the gospel with his captor. The Roman soldier, overwhelmed by this whole sequence of events, responded with a tremendous question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I can't help but read in those words another question. Why, Paul? What would make you do this? Why would you care about me? Paul would explain later in a letter to the church at Philippi, which would have now included this Philippian jailer, why he would do something like that. Paul explained that he himself had been in mortal danger when Jesus turned his back on his freedom in order to rescue him. Because Jesus entered into Paul's captivity to save him, it only made sense then that Paul would do the same thing for others. We live in a world of captives, both physical and spiritual. We were once there ourselves. Where would you be if Jesus chose to steward his resources as you are stewarding yours? What are you doing with your life? How are you leveraging your resources, your free time, and your talents to see salvation come in others? Have you evaluated your talents, your opportunities, and leveraged them for maximum kingdom impact? This is not just a duty of a select, specially called out few. Honestly, sometimes I think we invented this whole language of calling to mask the fact that most Christians are not really living as disciples of Jesus. Radical generosity and radical commitment to the mission is the response of every person who has experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus, being his disciple, means living as he lived. He leveraged his life for the lost. Are you using your gifts, your time, and your opportunities to enrich yourself or to bless the world with the knowledge of Jesus? I can't tell you exactly what investing your life for God's kingdom will look like. God has put such a marvelous array of gifts and passions into his body that it looks different for each of his followers. Maybe you can live on much, much less than you make and give the rest away. Maybe you could use your business skills overseas in a place where Christ is not well known. Maybe you could create jobs for others there. Maybe you could give your time to serve the poor in your community. 
Maybe you could move into a poor neighborhood in your own city to be the presence of Christ there. Maybe you could give your vacation time to go on a mission trip around the world. Over the last few years at our church, I have seen people respond to the gospel in the most incredible ways. I've seen people resign from high-paying corporate jobs to come on our staff. I know of a husband, wife, and two teenage children who abandoned the American dream and went to live in a fundamentalist Muslim country. I've seen people give away investment properties so they could ex- so we could expand our ministries. I've seen people uproot from nicer neighborhoods to live in ghettos. I've seen a college student turn down a several hundred thousand dollar job offer to go into church planning. I've seen students switch majors with higher earning potential to ones with low earning potential because they thought it would make them more useful for the Great Commission. I've seen others who took high-paying jobs and leveraged them for public witness. I've seen people get involved in our student and children's ministries. This past month, we saw 25 people uproot from our church to go and plant a church in an unreached part of downtown Denver, Colorado. I've seen families open up their homes to refugees. We have a whole army of people in our church who have adopted children from around the world, not because they were unable to have them biologically, but because they wanted to do for someone what Jesus had done for them. These people want to have something to lay at the feet of King Jesus when he comes again. Does all of this sound radical to you? If so, then you're getting it. Jesus did not come to make slight alterations to our lifestyles. He called us to live a completely different kingdom to pick up his cross and live like he did. Stop waiting on God to tell you to offer your life for the kingdom. He's already done that. Instead, ask him to show you how best to do it. I pray that you'll embrace the lostness of the world and rearrange your life in light of it. But you are the only Christian I have ever known. For two years, I served as a church planter in Southeast Asia. The last conversation I had there almost 10 years ago left an indelible mark on my life. An Islamic friend, whom I will call Ahmed, had come to say goodbye. He had been my best friend there. He befriended me at a very lonely time in my life, and for two years we talked, traveled, studied, and fished together. I had tried a number of times to bring up Jesus to him, but Ahmed seemed eager to leave the subject alone. He was as committed a Muslim as I had ever met. He was kind of like an Islamic youth pastor volunteering his afternoons to serve underprivileged kids and teens. When I would talk about Jesus, he would smile and say, you are a good man of faith, you were born in a Christian country, and you honor the faith of your parents. I was born in a Muslim country, and I honor the faith of mine. You were born in a Christian, and will die a Christian. I was born a Muslim, and I will die a Muslim. About a week before I left, I knew I had to have one more conversation with him. So I sat him down and poured my heart out. I told him that according to the Bible, only those who have believed on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins can enter God's kingdom. For 15 minutes, he sat politely and listened. He then thanked me for my friendship and left. I did not see him again until the day I was preparing to return home. A few minutes before I was supposed to leave, he came to say goodbye. I could tell something was on his mind, so I asked him about it. Our conversation from a week ago, he said. After we talked, I thought about how much I appreciated you for telling me so directly what you believed. 
But then, I didn't think much of it. He is a Christian, I am a Muslim, I thought. That is how each of us was born, and that is how each of us will die. But seven days after our conversation, I had a dream. At first, I thought it was one of those dreams that comes when I eat spicy fish. But I've had those kind of dreams. This was different. In my dream, I was standing on earth, and suddenly, open before my feet was the straight and narrow way leading to heaven. And as I looked up along this pathway to heaven, he said, you were on it. You arrived at heaven's gates. But the way inside was blocked by huge brass doors. I thought to myself, that is where his journey ends. Who has the power to open those doors? But then, as I watched, someone from inside knew you, and they called your name. The doors then swung open wide for you, and you went in. And then my heart broke, because I really wanted to go with you. But then, the doors opened again, and you came back out, walked back down the path a little ways, and stretched your hand out to me, down here on earth. And you pulled me up to heaven with you. Do you think God is trying to tell me something? I would have no problem interpreting this one. For the next hour, I walked him through Romans and Acts, showing him how Jesus, the God-man, had come to earth, lived as our substitute, died our death, rose again, and offered salvation to all who would believe. What he said next is something I can never, ever forget. He said, I knew why Allah gave me that dream. He was telling me that you were sent here by God, to show me the path that leads to heaven. You were to teach me God's ways and explain to me his Injil, how they say gospel. But today, my friend, you are going home, and we will probably never see each other again. You are the only Christian that I know who will teach me the way of God. I would love to tell you that he became a believer. Sadly, he did not, and to my knowledge, he has not. We live in a world of Achmeds. They're, they are not a number. They are individuals. Have you really thought about what that means for us? We cannot pretend it's not true. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon once if they thought people who had never heard about Jesus could be saved. His response went something like, I don't believe they can be. But the better question is, how could those of us who have known Jesus and failed to take him to those who have not heard possibly be saved. I heard a story several years ago about a man who was driving his car down an interstate outside of Los Angeles late one evening. A significant earthquake rumbled through the region, and so the man pulled his car over to the side of the road to wait it out. The earthquake was severe, but over, the, over after just a few seconds. So the man pulled his car back onto the road, took a left onto a bridge, and began to cross over. About halfway across the bridge, he noticed the tail lights of the car in front of him disappear. He stopped his car, got out, and realized that a section of the bridge had fallen out during the earthquake. The car in front of him had driven into the chasm at full speed, plunging nearly 75 feet into the water below. The man turned around and realized that several more cars were headed toward the break. He began to wave his arms frantically. People driving across a bridge outside of Los Angeles at 3 a.m., are not likely to stop for what looks like a crazy person on the side of the road. And so he watched as four cars drove past, plunging to their deaths below. He then saw a large bus coming toward the break. He made up his mind that if this bus was going off the bridge, it had to take him with it. 
So he stood in the path and waved his arms. The bus honked its horn, flashed its lights, but the man would not move. The bus driver got out, saw the danger, and angled the bus so that no more cars could get past. What would you have done if you had been the one to discover the break in the bridge? You probably would have done just what that man did, passionately plead for people to stop. People in the world who do not know Christ are headed for a destruction far worse than that presented by the fallen bridge. Millions more are headed there now. Every day, you should think about what Christ gave up so that you would not perish. Then, you should ask God to help you do for others what He has done for you. Again, I'm warning you, this is a dangerous prayer. It will lead you to some radical changes. So I challenge you to pray it. As you have been to me, so I will be to others.